Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in uh, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, and reading verses 1 and 2 again, where we read, And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Last Saturday evening, I watched uh, the film uh, The Railway Man. It's a, it's a beautiful but harrowing depiction of the true story of Eric Lomax, uh, who was a, a British officer uh, during the Second World War, and he's captured by uh, the Japanese. And he's sent to a Japanese prisoner of war camp uh, to work on the infamous uh, Thai-Burma railway line. During his imprisonment, he's suspected of being a spy, and he goes through a prolonged period of uh, beatings, uh, food deprivation, and uh, waterboarding. After the war, he struggles to uh, cope with life, but eventually he meets with a man, Takashi Nagase, who was one of his main interrogators. The scene is set for Lomax to execute revenge on Nagasi for all that he had done to him, all the suffering that he had gone through in the war, but also in the years since the war. But the pair find a path to reconciliation, with Lomax writing to Nagasi and saying, While I cannot forget what happened in Kanchanaburi, I assure you of my total forgiveness." The film closes by saying that Eric Lomax and Takashi Nagasi became great friends and that they remained so until Nagasi's death in 2011. It's a wonderful story of forgiveness. Well, this morning we're continuing our studies in Matthew chapters 8 to 10 and we're focusing on the even greater forgiveness that is found in Jesus, the one who can truly forgive sin. And we're going to look at this under three headings, the recognition then the restoration, and finally, the reaction. First you have the recognition. Look at verses 1 and 2. Here Matthew focuses on Jesus' recognition of a paralyzed man's greatest problem. In verse 1, we see the arrival of Jesus. We can begin by noting where Jesus had been. He had been on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, not far from the city of Gadara, and while there, he had encountered two demon-possessed men, uh, men who were oppressed and possessed by dark satanic powers, but also men uh, who were reduced to living in torment, men who were reduced to uh, exercising deeds of terrible violence. And upon encountering these two men, Jesus had proceeded to exorcise the demons who were wielding such an awful influence over them. The demons had come out of the men. They had entered into a herd of pigs that were feeding nearby. The pigs had run down the steep bank into the Sea of Galilee where they had drowned. The people of Gadara had then arrived on the scene and had promptly asked Jesus to leave the region. And look at verse 1. We now see where Jesus goes. He gets into the boat and he crosses to the other side of the lake. The people of Gadara had asked him to leave and Jesus quietly gives them what they want. He goes. And you know what, friends? There is no record that he ever went back. It's very, very solemn. And having crossed to the other side of the lake, he now comes to his own city. This is the town of Capernaum, as we see in Matthew chapter 4. It was the scene of many of Jesus' healing miracles that we read about in Matthew chapter 8. 
And in verse 2, we move from the arrival of Jesus to the arrival of some men. Matthew tells us who Jesus met. Look at the beginning of verse 2. Almost as soon as Jesus arrives in Capernaum, some men come up to him. Uh, They're carrying a man who's paralyzed. He's, He's unable to walk. And his paralysis is emphasized by the way that Matthew writes that he was lying on a bed. He was lying on a mat. The man has to be carried everywhere. He is dependent on others for everything. Wherever this man wants to go or needs to go, other people need to carry him. Matthew goes on to tell us what Jesus saw. Look at verse 2. He saw their faith. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes throughout the Galilee region, healing people who had many afflictions, including paralysis. In Matthew chapter 8, we read about Jesus meeting a Roman centurion, and this Roman centurion's servant, his, his young servant, a man whom he was very fond of, is lying paralyzed in bed, and Jesus had healed him. These men have heard about what Jesus can do, what Jesus has been doing in their local region, They know that Jesus is the one who can heal paralyzed men. And so they come to Jesus for a healing. And Jesus sees their faith. He sees their confidence in him, their conviction about him. And Matthew tells us what Jesus said. Look at verse 2 again. He begins by telling the paralyzed man to take heart. He goes on and tells the paralyzed man that he regards him as my son or my child. And then he concludes by assuring the paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see that Jesus recognizes what a person's greatest problem is. Jesus recognizes what a person's greatest problem is. That is what we see in this passage. This man and his friends have come to Jesus for healing. They think that this man's paralysis is his greatest problem, but Jesus recognizes that this man has a greater problem, a deeper problem, the problem of his sin, that sin that separates him from God. Jesus sees that this man's spiritual condition is his deepest issue, his biggest issue. It is far more important than his physical condition. And so Jesus says to him, Take heart, my son, your sin is forgiven. Jesus recognizes that this man's greatest need is his sin, and he seeks to address it. And you know, friends, that is so important for us to remember. The gospel presents us with a Jesus who has compassion on the sick. He's aware of our physical condition. He's not indifferent to our physical condition. You know, if you are sick today, if you are unwell today, Jesus is not indifferent to that. But the gospel also presents us with a Jesus who doesn't simply have compassion on the sick, but also has a concern for souls. He's aware of our spiritual need. And that is what matters most to him. Jesus is the Savior who cares about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. The suffering that results from sin. The suffering that results from our rebellion against God. Today, friends, this passage is presenting us with a Jesus who recognizes that a person's greatest need is their sin. Their greatest need is forgiveness for their sin. He recognizes that. And the question is, friends, do you see this? Do I see this as our greatest problem, our greatest need? The people in Stornoway don't think that's their greatest need. 
I walk along the co-op, as many of you know. I speak to people and I, I try to speak to them about their souls. And all they want to speak about is COVID. All they want to speak about is a new Cold War going on in Eastern Europe. They think that is the biggest problem going on in the world. The biggest problem in this world, friends, is sin. And our greatest need is forgiveness for our sin. Do you see this? Do I see this as our greatest need? But we move from the recognition to the restoration. Look at verses 3 to 7. Matthew now focuses on Jesus' restoration of this paralyzed man. In verse 3, we see the complaint. A new group emerge on the scene at the beginning of verse 3. We read that there were a number of scribes present. The scribes were the highly respected teachers of the Old Testament scriptures. They had PhDs in theology. Everybody looked up to the scribes. They were recognized and respected for their interpretation of God's word. And not only their interpretation of God's word, but their application of God's word to everyday life. And we hear what these scribes were saying. Look at verse 3. They begin to speak to themselves. They start thinking about what Jesus has just said to this paralyzed man. And they come to the conclusion that this man, this Jesus, this fellow, is blaspheming. They see Jesus as demeaning God. They see Jesus as dragging God down to his level by doing what only God can do by forgiving sin. By pronouncing forgiveness on this paralyzed man. And they're angry that this man, this fellow, this Jesus is going about saying, your sins are forgiven. They view that as blasphemy, an offense punishable by death. They're they're thinking this to themselves. But we move from the complaint to the confrontation. Look at verses 4 and 5. Matthew tells us what Jesus knew. He knew their thoughts. These men are keeping their thoughts very much to themselves. You know, everybody's looking at them. Nobody knows what they're thinking. They're like a closed book. But they're thinking to themselves, this man, this fellow, this Jesus is blaspheming. And Jesus knows their thoughts. Something that only God can do. Can I just say, friend, that you might be thinking about all manner of things right now. And Jesus knows it all. You can't hide it from Jesus. And Matthew tells us what Jesus said. He begins by challenging them as to why they're thinking evil in their hearts. These men are accusing Jesus of blasphemy because of what he is saying with his lips. And Jesus accuses them of evil because of what they're saying in their hearts, what they're thinking in their minds. And Jesus goes on to ask them about which is easier to say. Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or is it easier to say, rise up and walk? Which is easier to say? Rise up and walk, or your sin is forgiven. It is far easier to say to a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. But we move from the confrontation to the cure in verses 6 and 7. Jesus continues speaking and he describes himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a supernatural figure in Daniel chapter 7. He's the one whom the Ancient of Days gives all authority to. And it's Jesus' favorite self-designation. He uses it 81 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Jesus sees himself as the Son of Man. He sees himself as the exalted figure of Daniel chapter 7. He sees himself as this supernatural being 
And Jesus claims that he is going to do something that will result in the scribes knowing that he is the Son of Man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. The scribes see Jesus as a mere man. They see him as this fellow. And Jesus is going to give them proof. He is going to give them visible, tangible evidence that he is more than a mere man. That he is in fact the Son of Man. That he is the one with divine authority. And Jesus then turns from the scribes to the paralyzed man and he proceeds to address him. He tells him to rise up. He tells him to pick up his bed and he tells him to go home. Now friends, you've all read this story before. You know what happens. But imagine you were there at the time. The air is now filled with tension. Because if this man rises, it will be visible proof that Jesus is the one who possesses divine authority. Jesus is the one who is the Son of Man. It will vindicate him. But if this man remains on his bed, if this man remains where he is, if this man remains lying down, it will simply prove that Jesus is a failure, not only a failure but a fraud, that he is a blasphemer. Can you see the tension? As Jesus says to this paralyzed man, rise up, take your bed, and go home. What's going to happen? And Matthew tells us that the man rose up and he went home. He goes home restored in body. His physical condition dealt with. But not only does he go home restored in body, he also goes home reconciled to God, his spiritual condition dealt with. He goes home as a man forgiven. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see that they're showing us that Jesus is the one who has authority to forgive sin. That's what we see in this passage. This is a story about a man being healed by Jesus. But there is a great danger that we simply focus on the healing. And if we just focus on the healing, we have missed the point entirely. This story isn't really about a healing. This story is about Jesus' authority to forgive. And the healing simply proves that he has the authority to forgive sin. Lincoln Duncan writes, The function of this miracle is to prove, is to evidence, is to compel those present to acknowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to forgive sin. And so this miracle is an attesting sign. It is a sign that corroborates Jesus' person, his claims, his message, his authority. And you know, friends, that is so important for us to remember. In his exposition of Matthew, R.C. Sproul tells the following story. Many years ago, a friend of mine who was not a Christian asked me to leave the ministry and come to work for him in his psychiatric practice. I was shocked because I know nothing about psychiatry, so I asked him why he wanted to hire me. He said, you may not know anything about psychiatry, but I, you know something about guilt and forgiveness. 98% of the people who come to me don't need a psychiatrist, they need a priest. You cannot believe how many people are walking around this world with unresolved guilt that is eating them up. Perhaps that's true of someone who's here today. Perhaps you've come here today with a load of guilt that is eating you up. Perhaps you've come here today with a load of shame 
that is weighing you down. Perhaps you've come here knowing a sense of failure that won't go away. You see, friends, we can put on our Sunday best. We can put on our good suits. We can put on our good ties. We can put on our nice cardigans or whatever else and come to church feeling absolutely wretched. And I want to say this clearly and categorically. A minister cannot provide you with the forgiveness that you're looking for. An elder cannot provide you with the forgiveness that you're looking for. Only Jesus has the authority to provide you with real forgiveness, full forgiveness, that he has purchased and secured at the cross at Calvary. And if you are in Christ today, if Jesus is your saviour, if you have taken hold of Jesus by faith, you can rejoice that there is no condemnation for you. If you are in Christ today, if Jesus is your Savior, if you have taken hold of him by faith, you can rejoice that you have forgiveness with God, peace with God, acceptance with God. And even on the days when you don't feel forgiven, the gospel tells you that this forgiveness is still yours in and through Christ and Christ alone. You know, I meet people, and you meet people, I'm sure, and they say, I don't feel very forgiven. Well, well, none of us will feel forgiven. You know what I think about feelings. Feelings come, feelings go. But the word of God, the gospel tells us that the Christian is forgiven fully, freely, finally in Christ. He has the authority to forgive sin. So today this passage is presenting us with a Jesus who can restore guilty people, a Jesus who can deal with the great problem of guilt, a Jesus who has the authority to forgive. And the question is, friend, have you gone to him? Have you gone to him? And if you've not gone to him, will you go to him? He's offered to you all. I don't care if you've been coming to the High Free Church for two weeks or if you've been coming since this church was first established in 2013 and if you've got a long connection with other churches before. I really don't care, friend. Jesus is offered freely to you all with all the forgiveness that is available in him. Have you gone to him? Will you go to him? Third and finally, we have the reaction. Look at verse 8. Matthew now focuses on the crowd's reaction to Jesus' restoration of this paralyzed man. Look what the crowds have seen and heard up until now. They've seen some men bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They've heard Jesus pronouncing this man's sins to be forgiven. They've looked on as Jesus has confronted the scribes uh, about what they've been saying about him concerning his pronouncement of forgiveness and they've seen Jesus demonstrate his authority to forgive by healing, restoring this man in his body. We're now told how the crowd reacted to all of this. Look at verse 8. Matthew tells us that they were afraid. They're filled with awe and terror. They're amazed and trembling at what they have seen, what they have heard. Their reaction is a natural response to a working of divine power. And Matthew goes on to tell us that they praised God. They glorify God. They worship God. This, this dramatic event, this dramatic healing results in doxology coming from their lips. 
And Matthew tells us that they praised God who had given such authority to men. Jesus has just claimed to be the Son of Man. The crowd latch on to this statement and they see Jesus as a man. And they see him as a man whom God has highly favoured, a man whom God has highly exalted, a man whom God has given special authority to. But you know, friends, they leave it there. That is as far as they will go when it comes to their view on who Jesus is. Friends, as we consider this verse, it's showing us that there is a very real danger that we simply do not go far enough when it comes to our understanding of who Jesus is. That's what we see in this passage. The crowds are filled with fear. They're filled with praise. When they, when they see what has happened, they, they fear. They fear God. They fear Jesus. But they also praise God for what he has done through Jesus. And they praise God for giving a man the authority to forgive sin. And not only the authority to forgive sin, but also the authority to restore a paralyzed man. But their understanding of who Jesus is goes absolutely no further than this. As far as they're concerned, Jesus is a highly favoured man. He is a blessed man. But he's just a man. Just a man. They fail to see him as Emmanuel, God with us, as Matthew highlighted in chapter 1. They fail to see him as the Son of God, as the demons confess in Matthew chapter 8. They fail to see him as the Son of Man, as Jesus claimed to be in Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. Their understanding of who Jesus is doesn't go far enough. And you know, friends, that serves as a warning to us. A warning to everyone reading this passage. I was telling the Gaelic prayer meeting a few weeks ago about a story concerning the Swiss theologian Karl Barth. Karl Barth was on a streetcar one day in Basel where he was lecturing and a tourist to the city climbed into the car and he sat down next to Bart and the two men started chatting with each other. Are you new to the city, Bart inquired. Yes, said the tourist. Is there anything you would particularly like to see in the city, asked Bart. Yes, said the tourist. I would love to meet the famous theologian Karl Bart. Do you know him? Bart replied, well, well yes, I do. I happen to shave him every day. The tourist got off the car, went back to his hotel quite delighted and was saying to himself and to anyone whom he met, I met Karl Barth's barber today. This passage is saying to us, it is more than possible for us to come face to face with Jesus, to meet him in his word and to be impressed by him to be inspired by him, to be amazed by him, to be astounded by him, and that is as far as it goes. We can fail to see and appreciate who he really is. Over the last few weeks, Matthew has been presenting us with this evidence, this case for Christ. He has shown us the authority of Jesus over sickness, the authority of Jesus over storms, the authority of Jesus over Satan, and now the authority of Jesus over sin. Matthew is saying to us, Jesus is more than a mere man. He is the God-man. And so as we close, I want to ask, how are you reacting to these narratives? How are you responding to this Jesus? 
Do you see him as just a man? A good man, yes. A blessed man, yes. A a highly favoured man, yes. But just a man. Or are you bowing before him as the son of man? The son of God. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. That was the great problem that these scribes in the crowd have in Matthew chapter 9. The scribes see him as a man who blasphemes. The crowd see him as a man given special authority. But both simply see him as a man. Friends, I hope and pray every one of us today sees him as more than this. And that we are bowing the knee to him as son of God, son of man, saviour of the world. Let's pray.